0: We uh, are in week three of our Growing Young series, and um, and it's a pretty amazing that uh, the series comes from this book here called Growing Young. Ha, Clever, we got stole the title from the book. And um, and and what this, what the researchers at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California did was they uh, uh, worked with and surveyed and interviewed uh, about three hundred plus different churches over, I think thousands of people. And, um, and they had a huge grant to do all of this stuff, and they wanted to find out what churches are doing that are growing young. And in the book, they talk about six different things churches are doing that are growing young. The idea of growing young is that churches are growing um, in terms of relationships with all generations. The, the seasoned generations connecting with the younger generation, the younger generation connecting with the season generation and so we're in week three we're already hearing stories of what some of our ohana groups are doing we have 50 Ohana groups that meet throughout the week that is pretty amazing and so uh, these groups are, are are calling us or they're letting us know of uh, these different ideas that they have and that they're trying to do and that they're going to implement and we're excited that the start of the series is going so well and if you're an ohana group and your group is doing something as well or if you have a group of friends Maybe it's not an official Ohana group. Just let us know what you're doing. We want to kind of celebrate what it is that that your group wants to do to further this relationship between all generations. And uh, we're excited about what's going on. And in this book, in their research, they found something very interesting. They found that young people, young people and churches that grow young take the message of Jesus seriously. That's pretty profound, that they take the message of Jesus seriously. Like, like when they look at the, the gospel... When they talk about the gospel, the young people in these, in these surveys, they answered the gospel is about Jesus. It's not about the church necessarily, but it's about Jesus. And they want to know Jesus, and they want to know Jesus more and more and more. And so when they talk about the gospel, they say it's about Jesus. It's about that he died and that he rose again and that we could be united with him. It's the good news of what Jesus Christ has done and the fact that we can unite with Him and and they want to know Jesus. They want to know Jesus experience. They want to know Jesus real. And I wonder how many churches across the nation forget about Jesus. I was in a church a number of couple years ago, and there was this altar call. And this altar call was like, "Do you want to become part of God's family?" And there was nothing in it about Jesus or about the cross or about the death and burial and resurrection that is the crux of Christianity. And I was kind of blown away by that. But what young people want from my experience working in the university setting for seven and a half years and from the research in this book here from one of the largest research organizations in the States in terms of this realm, what 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 I found and what we're realizing more and more is that people want to see Jesus incarnate in us. Meaning they want to see people living out the faith that they say we believe. That we say we believe. That's the beauty about growing young. That we learn that people want to see Jesus and see Jesus real. So let's make this personal. What about at home? How often is Jesus talked about at home? What about at work. And I'm not talking about getting all crazy and like Everything is Jesus, right? Like, I'm talking about just being real and just being natural and being, you know, who you're wired to be. Uh, but, but at the same time, when you're at home having conversations with your kids, are, are your kids invited into those conversations of faith? Are, are, are your kids invited into this conversation of it's okay to have these questions? Let's kind of discuss it a bit. Or do we just squash these ideas? Or do we just not talk about it at all because our schedules are so busy? Churches that grow young, churches that are thriving, churches that are connecting with young people are churches that take the message of Jesus seriously. And so how do we talk about the gospel? Because sometimes we think about the gospel, we think about, you know, well, you know, if I'm a believer in Jesus, I have to earn my way. So I have to behave a certain way or have to do a certain thing. And what we do is we create a list of all these things we have to do. And all these things. And we do all these 20 good things, then, then all of a sudden we're in heaven. But that's not what grace is. Grace is undeserved favor, unmerited favor. Grace is, is getting something that we don't deserve, but God has given it to us anyways. And when we talk about the gospel, when we talk about grace, and when we live it out, our actions have got to back up our words. Because if we're in a fight with somebody... And we say, I'll forgive you if you go and do this, if you pay that person back. Or I'll forgive you if you go and do that. That's not grace being seen by other people, your kids, your grandkids, your, 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 your nephews, your nieces. They're watching you and they're seeing how Christ is lived out in you. And so are we living the life that God has called us to live a life of grace. Dallas Willard writes in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, he writes about the fallacy that the gospel is sin management. That is that we are saved because we are good people. And that's when we create the list of what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. And so, so what happens with Christianity is, is, that, is that it becomes more of a sin management thing. I've done more good than bad today, so therefore, I'm good in the eyes of God. But what about the week after? Oh, I've done more bad than good, therefore, God is not happy with me. But what happens when Christianity becomes workspace? And here's one of the problems with young people when Christianity, when Jesus becomes all about works and all about what we have to do to earn salvation The problem is when young people go off to college and when they have a moral failure. Not like if they have a moral failure, but when they have a moral failure. If they have a workspace understanding of the gospel, it becomes exponentially harder to stay connected to the church because now they wonder if God is big enough to forgive them for their sins. And they forget the passage in Ephesians 2. Uh, 8 and 9, that says, it is by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. Or it's not by works, so and not of yourself, for it is the gift of God. We're saved by grace through faith. Good works do not save us. We are saved because of grace. So when young people talk about taking the message of serious, we have to ask, what exactly are they talking about? What exactly are we talking about and how serious is serious? How serious is serious? Here's a myth that young people want a watered-down gospel or a hyper-entertaining gospel with all the lights and the smoke and the fog machines and all that stuff's cool. We had a lot of that at the university that I worked at before this, and it was cool. It was, it, was, it was great, but you know what? There were still so many students broken, so many students hurting, so many students who needed the Lord, so many students who needed a mentor, so many students who needed someone to come alongside them. They could care less about all the bells and whistles. And, and, and that's the myth, is that, is, that, is, that, is that young people want the gospel watered down or they want to have this hyper-entertaining gospel. Here's the, the, the amazing part, is that young people want to be challenged because Jesus is compelling. Jesus is compelling. And churches that take the message of Jesus seriously grow young. And so what do we mean by taking the message of Jesus seriously? Well, let's look at a couple passages in the Bible that refer to uh, this this idea here. In, In the Gospel of Matthew, so Matthew in chapter 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' inaugural sermon. This is like his first words to everyone in public ministry. This is important. And if we would read the Sermon on the Mount every single day or a chapter a day for the next month, our lives would be changed and our lives would be more enriched because I think the Holy Spirit would continue to work and mold us and bring us healing in different areas of our lives, I believe. And so in Matthew chapter 5, we read this, and it's, it's the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, another way it's in the Beatitudes is the beautiful attitudes of Jesus. These are the attitudes and the life that Jesus lived. These are the characteristics that Jesus lived while he was here on earth. So Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit heaven these are the beatitudes these are the the beautiful attitudes of jesus the, the the attitudes that jesus portrayed while he was here on earth the word blessed can mean fortunate or can mean happy it's this idea that when we do these things it's like god smiling down upon us saying that's how i created you to created you to be and when we live according to how we're designed to live that's when we start living this fulfilling life that god calls us to But let's look at some of these Beatitudes. Let's just look at three of them real quick. Blessed are the merciful. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful. Mercy has to do with feeling the other person's issues and pain and acting on it. Mercy has to do with feeling the other person's pain, the other person's issues, and acting on it. It's a command of Jesus to care and to have mercy for others. And so who do we show mercy to? Well, I think the example of Jesus is probably the best example of that because the example of Jesus is, is this here. Jesus showed mercy to pretty much everyone he came in contact with. He showed mercy to the people that everyone overlooked. He showed mercy to the quote-unquote sinners. He showed mercy to the prostitutes, to the thieves, to the the tax collectors. He showed mercy to all these different people. The people group he was the hardest on were the religious elite, which I like to think I'm not part of, but sometimes I act like it. But, But mercy is what Jesus did. So who do we show mercy to? The example Jesus gives us is pretty much, and if not, we should give, rather, we should give mercy and show mercy to everyone. Blessed are the merciful. The reason you and I are God's children, for those who accepted the Lord, is because we, he had mercy on us and he has adopted us into his family. God has adopted us into his family because of his great mercy. How do we take that seriously? Living for Jesus is not an easy task by any means at all. Living for Jesus is a challenging, difficult task. But it is one worth living. Blessed are the pure in heart, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. The heart here refers to our motivation center. And the word purity has this idea that there's no additives, that there's no, nothing that's tainting it. Or another way of saying it is that this is pure in heart. That, 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 that this is the pure in heart person uh, does not have double motives. So the person who is pure in heart keeps the main thing the main thing. It's not like, you know, they say one thing but mean another thing. Or they say one thing but do another thing. The, the, the pure in heart person is somebody who is is focused on the mission and keeping the mission in focus. Blessed are the pure in heart. Then in verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. Bless are the peacemakers in verse 9. Peace here describes a person who is not only without conflict, but also a person who is whole. It describes a person who has it all together. And the quality has to do with making peace with Others, and, and, and would you consider yourself a peacemaker or would you consider yourself somebody who's more on the quarrelsome side? Are you that person who always has to win a fight? If I were to ask your spouse, your loved one, your significant other, do they always have to win that fight? <laughs> what would they say? Blessed are the peacemakers in verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then we read later in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 verse 43. And Matthew chapter 5 verse 43 it says love your enemies. You have heard that it was said Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know, this, this commandment here is very difficult to live. This challenge that Jesus gives us is very difficult to live out. And I, and, I, and I think if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit inside of us, giving us the ability to love our enemies, I don't know if we would realistically be able to do it. Because think about the different enemies you have. Maybe it's not like a real-life enemy like somebody you know. Maybe it's an enemy that is somebody who disagrees with you. Or maybe it's an enemy of somebody that has different views than you. Whatever it is. But how do we love our enemies? How do we love people who think different than we do? How do we love people who we uh, just grossly disagree with? How do we love these types of people? Jesus says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. You know, when we're praying for people who we hate, it's kind of hard to keep hating them. When we pray for people who have hurt us, it is hard for us to keep praying in a way where there's bitterness. Now, the other side of that is this. is Some have experienced such deep hurt that it takes a long time to work through that. And if you're at a spot where you've been hurt... And you just don't know how to work through that, always see a professional Christian counselor. The other side of that is don't be so hard on yourself because sometimes it takes time. To work on that. It's not like we snap our fingers and everything is all fine and dandy. That's not the reality. The reality is is that Jesus meets us in our struggles. That Jesus meets us in our pain. Jesus meets us in our hurt. So instead of being hard on yourself, invite Jesus into that struggle that you're going through. Then Jesus tells us this in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 to 6. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, Sermon on the Mount, same thing. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not judge. It's important to understand here what Jesus means about do not judge, because sometimes uh, I think we misunderstand this idea of do not judge. Jesus says do not judge, but what does that mean? And Christians are accused. All the time, and saying, oh, all they do is judge people, right? So what is he talking about? What isn't he talking about? Because elsewhere, later on in this, in, in, in John chapter 7, Jesus says, stop judging by mere appearances. In John 7, 24. Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. And so the, the judgment that Jesus wants us to get away from has to do with superficial judgment. That we just judge from the outside. Oh, they don't look this way. We're going to judge them. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be a hypocrite. Meaning, you're judging somebody for the very thing you do. How many times have you seen people so critical of one particular sin, and that's the one that they're struggling with the most? So, so, so don't judge hypocritically. Then, then, then let's not be the people who are harsh and unforgiving like we're like we're not going we're not going to forgive you because of what you've done and we're just harsh with the other person just raining down hurtful words on them. But when Jesus is talking about judging others, he's talking about using wisdom and and community to help us correct a brother or sister when it is needed in an appropriate manner. And working with young adults, there's three shifts that have taken place in the last 10 years. One, young adults want less talk about abstract beliefs and more talk about Jesus. Less talk about abstract beliefs and more talk about Jesus. When young people talk about abstract beliefs, they want clarity. Young people, uh, they, they, they hear us use a lot of religious jargon, Christianese. They simply want to experience Jesus. And, and let's talk more about Jesus. If you think about it, in the Old Testament, there's 613 Old Testament laws. Jesus summarized them in two. He says, love God, and then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. He summed up everything. That's pretty self-explanatory. And when you and I really live that out, we start living radical lives when we love God and when we love God others second shift is this less young people want to be less tied to formulas and more focus on the redemptive narrative one of the ways young people connect with God is through story the entire Bible is what God has done through history and it's not like we close the Bible and then that's the end of the story of God no, because the beauty is that God's story continues to happen today. And when we work with young people, how do we show their part of the story and God's master plan? How do we show a young person's part in God's narrative? How do we walk alongside them and say, see, this is what you're gifted to do. This is what you're designed to do. This is what God has called you to do. This is what I see in you. Because when that happens, they go, wow, I have a place in God's narrative. I have a place in God's story and that creates excitement and that creates some amazing, amazing conversations. Jesus talked about parables and stories all the time and we could communicate and do life with young people and with our peers and friends because God has a place for us and his great story. Three, the third shift is that talk less about heaven later and more about life here and now. Lots of time is like, do you know Jesus? Yes, okay, you're going to heaven. And that's it. But we miss so much. The idea of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view... Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do, not, we do so no longer. Therefore, here it is, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. When we accept the Lord as our Savior, the new is here. That the kingdom is now. And, and when we talk about the good news, the good news of Jesus... The gospel, that he died, that he rose again, that we could be united with him. When we talk about that, how is the good news good if it's not until we die? Why isn't the gospel realized in our lives today, bringing the kingdom of heaven in everyday life and in what we're doing today? And young people these days, and in every generation, I say, have doubts and less embrace doubt. 70% of the uh, young people, 18 to 29, that they surveyed, 70% said they had significant doubts about faith. And sometimes we go, well, that's a bad thing. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. There's an amazing story in Genesis 18 23 to 33, and I'm just gonna paraphrase it, but the stories of Abraham. Having a discussion with God. God's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, okay, God, listen. If there's 50 like, good people, you're not going to destroy the good and the bad, right, God? You would never do that, God. You're God. So you wouldn't do that, right, God? If there's 50 good people, God, tell me, tell me, please, you wouldn't destroy it. And God says this. Yes, Abraham, if if there's 50 good people, I won't destroy it. And then he goes, okay, what about there's 45? Okay, what if there's 40? What if there's 5? What if there's 10? And he just keeps bargaining with God. But what's interesting is Abraham is doubting God's decision to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's doubting God's goodness. I've never caught that until this week. And what I take away from that is that when we doubt, when we have the moments of uncertainty, God doesn't say, oh, shame on you. What does God do? He says, I'm here. I am here. And my favorite example is when the the, the man's uh, uh, child was healed and Jesus says, do you believe? He says, yes, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. He was never chastised for his unbelief. Everyone has doubts. You and I have doubts. Young people have doubts. And we have two options. One is we could tell them the four reasons of why they shouldn't doubt. Or or we could say, let's walk through this life together. And let's work through this together because I have been there. And maybe a number of you are there right now. We all have doubts. And God will meet us in our doubts. He engages us in our time of doubt. And sometimes the church has been known when young people come not to be an engaging place for doubts. When I was a youth pastor, this youth kid came to me and said, Brian, I'm trying to figure this whole thing out, but this youth leader just basically just tells me to read the Bible and pray more, it's, it's something like that, and he missed the whole point of what she was trying to get at. She was asking some good, some tough questions, and she wanted some some, some good dialogue, but all she was getting was these trite answers. Let's you and I be men and women who go deeper in our faith and go underneath the surface of what people are really saying to get to the roots of what is going on. Listening to the doubts of young people is so important. And, and, and check this out. Doubt is not toxic to faith. It's silence. Doubt is not toxic to faith. It's silence. In fact, when young people are willing to talk about their doubts and their struggles, they are more likely to be reading the Bible at the same time. On the flip side, if a young person is not talking about their doubts, they're less likely to read their Bible and less likely to work through their struggles. So my philosophy is let's create an environment where young people can talk about their doubts, can talk about their struggles in a free and safe environment. And our church is a perfect example of that, where people are loved and people are welcome, where we invite them wherever they are in life. And we say, you are welcome However, you are, wherever you are in faith, we want you here. As the band comes, there's four, 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 like, kind of takeaways, four action steps that anyone can take, you know, if we want to take the message of Jesus seriously. These aren't like these magical, like, here are the four things you could do and then your life will be better. These are just, I think, four important things we could do. Number one, when we read parts of the Sermon on the Mount and there was that one passage that did not sit well with you, put that into practice. And you're like, oh, I didn't like that one. That's the one we need to put in practice. Number two, if you were harsh or, unf- or, or you unfairly judged a young person or judged anyone, make things right with them and ask for forgiveness. Number three, If you see an injustice, bring the love and light of Christ to it. Number four, and this is one of the last things Pastor Ron said to me, was to show grace to everyone, to emphasize grace. We don't have it all figured out. We don't have all the answers. We are men and women who live by faith. We are men and women who are just trying to do life and honor God. And so let's show grace to people. Let's show more grace to people. When we do that, we're taking the message of Jesus seriously. And when we do that, we start connecting, not just with young people, but with all generations. Let's stand and let's respond through songs.